brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. SoftRep.com, on time, on target. Now, as uh, a lot of you know, especially those who have been with us for a while, we were experimenting a few months back doing some members-only shows. Uh, We're not doing that anymore, although we still hope you become a member at SoftRep.com. But many of you who listen on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, uh, on Stitcher, anywhere else to get your podcasts, never got a chance to hear those episodes. So we wanted to use this opportunity to play one of those shows from the summer that the majority of you, I think, have not heard. And some of those were were just amazing shows, some of our best shows, and I thought this one was really awesome. So without further ado, Nick Kaufman, our Marine writer, joins us. You've probably seen his work at softrep.com, writes some excellent pieces for us, and Derek Gannon joined us for this one as well, as always. Anything you want to send to us, send it to softrep.radio at softrep.com. And let's get right into this episode from a few months back that many of you are hearing for the first time, Nick Kaufman. Yes, yeah, so pretty much minutes before we recorded, we were hearing, there's a terrorist attack in Times Square. Oh my are God. you all right? Yeah, and it and then I was reading reports that said elderly man, you know, basically goes through a crowd of people but now I'm seeing 26-year-olds from the Bronx with the history of DUI or DWI. I, I already had friends sending me memes within minutes. Oh, my God. It's the Muslims, the damn Muslims. It's Al-Qaeda. It's, and, we got to get them out of the country, build the wall. And it's uh, <laughs> apparently, though, uh, you know, it is unfortunate. One dead, uh, I, I think, like, around a dozen injured. The, the reports seem to be a little yeah. different. Sounds, like, sounds like a DUI, though. Yeah, but not terrorism. But I think everybody just jumps the gun. The, the one thing is, we were just walking around New York City. I'm sure people who heard the news, it, it, would, it takes a lot to shake up New Yorkers. It's just kind of the way we are. Yeah. Um, like, I think in other parts of the country, they would hear suspected terrorists. People would be, like, having their plan to leave, which I'm not saying would be a, uh, what was it a that, bad thing. But what we're was just it not that happened, that like, a year ago? Was there, like, a bombing or a suspected bombing? I think it was around this area. There was the, a mailbox, right? And, like, suspected. nobody gave a shit. No. <laughs> No, I remember I was at a party and like one person left and everybody was just like, eh, you know what? That's just kind of the attitude of New Yorkers. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. Like we're not the most prepared people. Can you remember that crane collapse? That was another one. Yeah. That actually killed somebody. Okay. Yeah. I I think it's just we're so used to hearing alarming news and that type of thing that it's just it takes a lot to shock us. Although you watch that video from like Penn Station, which I played on the show, where there was a... uh, they tased a um, mentally unstable man. And in handcuffs. Was, right? that, was that it? I think they tased him, though. 
they maybe handcuffed him as well, mm-hmm. but you just saw people rushing yeah, yeah, out yeah. of uh, Penn Station. Those are the tourists. They're in Penn Station, man. They're not New Yorkers. But when you start to see the flock of people heading out, I think even the New Yorkers start to follow because yeah, just, it's herd like, mentality. What the hell is going Everyone's on? Everyone's scared. I talked about that with Brandon because I said, you know, you guys have more um, experience with this, this type of thing, and I know you don't just join the herd. But let's say you are at Penn Station, you see a flock of hundreds of people heading one way, kind of in fear, looking to leave. You know, how do you handle that if you're, especially as a former operator, as someone who, you know, it's the whole, like, get off the X thing? And I mean, figure you probably find your way out of the station, too. I mean, do you want to chance it? But it's, do you just join the herd, or do you... Do you um, probably, I mean... See, this is funny, because Brandon said the opposite. He was like, no, you don't go with the herd. You yeah. run towards the threat? No, 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 no but no, I think no. you, you kind of stop and analyze where are my exits and that type of thing and maybe try to find the exit not everybody's going to. I mean, I, I don't know if that's even what he specifically said, yeah, but for sure. it's, a, it's an interesting question because what do you do in that scenario? There's no easy answer, I don't think. I mean, in Penn Station, there's only a couple different exits. I mean, you're going one way or the other. Yeah. I mean, if everyone's running one way, are you going to run towards the way they're running away from? Yeah. Does that make sense? No. No, not really. But you also... I guess it's just why is everybody running? There's probably a few people who got alarmed by um, you know, someone being tased or in Brandon's case yeah. when he was at um, JFK where there was an accidental discharge. Yeah. But should the reaction be to like... Panic. No. Yeah. I mean, honestly, unless I'm hearing gunshots or I'm hearing a bomb going off, I'm probably not going to run anywhere. Well, accidental discharge, you are hearing a yeah, gunshot. One, sh- so. one shot, yeah. I mean, it would also be different. It's like if I was, like, with my family or something, my response would be different than if I was by myself. Like, I'm on my own. I don't really give a shit. But, like, yeah. otherwise, yeah. But you don't want to – you, you, you got to be able to be home for your daughter. I mean, you do have a family. Yeah, so. yeah. But, I mean, it's just a different situation. I wouldn't be so afraid if I was by myself. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I guess your reaction as when you were an operator to now is going to be pretty different. You also don't, you're not able to carry here. Right, right. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't get too worked up about this stuff. I mean, you got to keep your head about you. Cooler heads prevail. But I think the best thing you can do is just not panic. Have you ever thought about trying to get a permit to carry like Brandon has? Yeah, I have. Um, if I was to get a permit to carry, I wouldn't tell everybody about it like Brandon has. Because <laughs> the purpose of concealed carry is that people don't know you're carrying, right? So... We actually earlier got to speak to Derek Gannon, who's at Sofic. Am I saying it right? Sofic. Sofic. Yeah. Wait, so but we say soft rep. Yeah. Sofic. Is so- it? And Well, you know what's weird is people have come up to me and they always say soft rep. Does that happen to you? And I just have or always s- known us as soft rep. Soft rep. Well, that was like some parody account, soft right? Soft rep. Or <laughs> sofip. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard all sorts of different things. And so you know more about it, but this is basically, it's similar to SHOT Show, but it's more for the, as you guys would say, sort of mockingly industrial military. The military industrial complex. Uh, Yeah, it's it's a forum for um, private industry to show off their technological um, products and things they're working on to the special operations community. And likewise, it's an opportunity for special operations command to talk to these companies and tell them what they want. 
So they can sit down or uh, have a forum or whatever and say, okay, we're special operations. This is what we want to buy. This is what we want you guys to develop. We want this and this and that. And likewise, the vendors can show their wares and show, uh, show off what they have. So it's, a, um, it's an interesting conference, a lot of interesting folks there. Um, I actually like it a little bit better than uh, the SHOT Show. It's a little bit more low-key. It's a much smaller conference. And it's, it seems like it's uh, different types of people in the yes. industry. It's not. Uh, SHOT Show, even though it's closed off to the public, there, it, it's not the hardest thing to get into. No. I, uh, Shot, I, SHOT Show has like the whole tactical community there. Like the, the dress code is cargo pants, knife in the pocket, yeah. friction adapter belt, hat with the Velcro with the American flag, Velcro on the sleeves with morale <laughs> patches, uh, what else do you have to have? Well, the thing is, even you don't have to own a um, weapons company or something to be a presenter there or to be on the floor there. Sure. There's people with T-shirt companies. Sure, sure. There's people with. It's just kind of if you're in that At, community, you own a company, you could or know someone who does. You could pretty easily be a part of it. At, at Sofic, it's more like either suit and tie or khakis and polo shirt. And uh, and military members are wearing their uniform, so it's more a little bit more formal, not a little, uh, not so much, um, you know, that that weird uh, tactical. You know, my friend calls it calls that dress code. He calls it um, business tactical. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I didn't uh, mention it on the show that Terry was on, but one of the things that I thought was funny at that shot show that I still remember is. Terry Shepard was wearing like the opposite of what you're supposed to wear at Shot Show. He was wearing like a cardigan. Yeah, he was. And, he was wearing uh, a sweater. Yeah. yeah, and sandals. He was wearing like just regular yes. flip flops. And I remember while I was talking to him, some other guy who was a Green Beret who I didn't know asked Terry, "Who are you and and why are you relevant again?" And I don't know if he was asking it jokingly. It was a little strange though. And then Terry's response was, he was just like, I don't think I am that relevant. Maybe a few years ago, but... I, I love those kind of questions and, like, the smart-ass responses. Like, I remember I was at a shooting school one time, and uh, it, it, there's... It, at one of those courses, it's a total like dick measuring contest, everything, and everyone's talking about the backstory, like, oh, he was this and that, and he was this, and X this, or whatever. And uh, one of the guys on, on my team, actually, he went up to one of the instructors and said, who are you? What were you? You know, this kind of thing. And the instructor's like, well, I was a pedophile for a lot of years, oh. and then I moved down to the South because their laws are a lot more lax with the bestiality. <laughs> it was just a total smart-ass <laughs> remark he was making to... Uh, one of the guys on my team, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, that's pretty uh, <laughs> pretty intense. And also just thinking on the spot of the craziest thing that you can come up yeah, with. Yeah, the craziest bullshit answer you can possibly give. So, yeah, we'll have Derek tell us a little bit about that and the Iron Man suit, as he calls it. Um, we have Nick Kaufman coming on, who's a former Marine network operator. Uh, before we do, I had one email to get to from sent to uh, softrep.radio at softrep.com. So keep those coming, guys. Keep the voice memos coming. Um, this was one that I just thought was good. I, I try to get to at least some of them when we can. Uh, from Eric, who I assume is a former Marine because he says Semper Fi or maybe even current Marine. Uh, big fan of the site and podcast. Keep up the great work. My question is, what are the odds North Korea actually has an EMP weapon that can be used against the U.S. and its allies? And what are the actual consequences or results of such a weapon being used? Hmm, good question. I, I really don't know what the uh, odds are. I think it's within their capability to build a EMP weapon. It could be done. Um, 
what the threat is. Well, for instance, you know, a, a, a country could detonate an EMP above the United States, you know, in low orbit and cause substantial damage to the United States. North Korea doesn't have that kind of capability. They could detonate an EMP, um, you know, around the DMZ or around uh, around South Korea. Demi- which is the demilitarized zone. The demilitarized zone. zone uh, or maybe um, put it on a, on a ballistic missile and detonate over Japan even. So, But I think the damage they could do with an EMP is relatively small. And military systems are more or less, most of them are, are protected against EMP to some extent. Um, so the EMP threat... I, I would look at it, I would say it's not a huge threat in a conventional sense. It could be more of a threat in an unconventional sense that, like, maybe they could smuggle an EMP um, into a port or a airport or something like that and detonate it just before an invasion. You know, something like that. I, I, that's how I would kind of perceive that threat from North Korea. Okay, good answer. So send those over. Uh, any questions? Softrep.radio at softrep.com. Keep them coming. Uh, and then the other piece of news that I wanted to get into before we played the uh, interview with Derek was the protest in Washington against the, Tur- the Turkish pre- president uh, er- Erdogan in D.C. Erdogan. Erdogan. Silent G. Okay. I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. It's I, okay. So Erdogan um, that got extremely violent. So the people kicking the protesters included um, government yeah. security for Turkey, Bodyguards for Erdogan. And, yeah, yeah. So all of those guys should be hemmed up and deported. And you see that John McCain tweet there, if you want to read that, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, John McCain, he, he said, this is the United States of America. We do not do this here. There's no excuse for this kind of thuggish behavior. Um, and, yeah, I agree with him. I think those guys, there's, we need to stop handling Turkey with kid gloves and start putting some pressure on them. Um, diplomatic pressure, political pressure, um, using whatever kind of leverage we have with Turkey um, because Erdogan is a neo-Ottoman fascist Islamist whack job trying to install himself as dictator for life and doing this thuggish, thuggish bullshit on United States soil, that's, that ain't happening. That can't happen. So they need to start putting the boots to his ass. Yeah, I'll read the um, at least some paragraphs from the article for those who want to keep up with this. The cool thing is now that we recorded the day, day before, we could do a little bit more breaking news type stuff. Um, so the article's from the New York Times. Erdogan security forces launch brutal attack on Washington protesters, officials say. Uh, and this is from Nicholas Fandos and Christopher Mel. Supporters of President uh, Rece- uh, I can't, I can barely pronounce his last name, let alone his full name. Recep, Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, including his government security forces and several armed individuals, violently charged a group of protesters outside the Turkish ambassador's residence here on Tuesday night in what the police characterized as a brutal attack. Eleven people were injured, including a police officer, and nine were taken to a hospital. The Metropolitan Police Chief Peter Newsham said at a news conference on Wednesday, two Secret Service agents were also assaulted in the melee, according to a federal law enforcement official. The State Department condemned the attack as an assault on free speech and warned Turkey that the action would not be tolerated 
Uh, and then the quote is, we are communicating our concern to the Turkish government in the strongest possible possible terms. Oh, wow. We're communicating our concern. <laughs> oh, I'm so scared, State Department. <laughs> yeah, that's from uh, Heather Narard, a State Department Thanks, spokeswoman. Heather. Thanks, Heather. Thank you. <laughs> a group of uh, Republican lawmakers went a step further, calling the episode an affront to the United States and calling for Turkey to apologize. I'd kick the ambassador out, too. Yeah, so I wonder Send a what, message. what do you... What do you do? Because this it, not only is this not tolerated, it's completely illegal. Th- a protest is, is very legal in America, but when it gets violent yeah. and when you have officials from a foreign country uh, getting violent with protesters, that completely violates the law no yeah. matter where you they are. Ha- they have diplomatic immunity, so we can't really like jail them. But, I mean, you can arrest all of those guys and then deport them. Yeah. And then you can start making, like we did with the Russians, you know, you'd be like, listen, you guys are up to no good, so we're deporting. 30 of you. Bye. But diplomatic immunity really means you could start assaulting Secret Service members? Yes, it does. That's insane. Do you remember here in New York City uh, when Giuliani was uh, the mayor, there was a Russian diplomat who punched out an NYPD cop, and Giuliani did everything he could to try to prosecute the Russian diplomat, and he he was powerless. He couldn't do anything. Yeah. So uh, keep up with... They sent them home, the diplomat, but they couldn't prosecute. It's crazy, man. Yeah, keep up with this story. Um, I'm sure we'll have something up on Safrap. The New York Times article kind of covers it all. The videos, you really have to watch the videos to get a feel for... Yeah, it was Battle Royale on Embassy Row right there in Washington, D.C. And people got some really good video of it as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were posting about that. Um, Cool. Well, is there anything else to get to before we play this uh, audio that we had with Derek and then get to Nick Kaufman? I don't know. I mean, uh, the only other thing is that turd Chelsea Manning is out of prison, got a presidential pardon. So she's out on the streets now. Yeah. What's your take on that? She should be in jail. Mm -hmm. I mean, she leaked all those classified diplomatic cables and every other damn thing. So, I mean... It's weird, man. We have a lot of conversations, a lot of like public conversations in the United States about like classified material. This is classified. That's classified. And you can see it happening today with Donald Trump. And did he leak classified information? Did he not? We saw it with Obama. We saw it with these SEAL Team 6 guys writing articles or writing books about bin Laden and all this sort of stuff. But it's like for all the hemming and hawing, there's very little real consequence. You know? Sure. I mean, Chelsea, she, okay, she got convicted. Then the president pardoned her. Uh, there's been no repercussions for, uh, for Lonely Ed because he ran away and defected to Russia. Um, all these people who are accused of breaking classifications, I mean, the only person I can think of who really paid a cost, really, and, and served his term was, uh, who's that CIA guy, uh, Kirikow? Kirikow? He, uh, he got convicted, and, uh, and, and he served this time. I think he's out now. I, like I said, for the, all the hemming and hawing, there's very little actual consequence for people. So, Do you think there needs to be stricter consequences for when people leak classified information? And Well, when you talk about the president, it, it's always going to be difficult um, because the president has the ability to declassify whatever he wants. So like, people are getting all excited right now saying, oh, Trump leaked classified information to the Russians in the Oval Office. Like, well, whether you like it or not, Trump can declassify whatever he wants when he wants. Sure. Uh, so, I mean, there's all these, like, uh, Democrats who are, like, chomping at the bit talking about impeachment and stuff, and it's like, guys, you're going to be disappointed here. <laughs> like, it's typical letting emotion overcome, you know, 
rational thought. Yeah, because the whole thing is I, I do see people online saying, well, Bill Clinton got impeached for far less, but Bill Clinton lied Bill under Clinton oath. Bill Clinton lied under oath. Different, different story. Yeah. <laughs> if you get Trump to lie under oath, you can impeach. Yeah. Well, people have this false uh, historical uh, idea of what happened of just saying, oh, he got impeached for getting a blowjob. Yeah, for having an not affair. not what it no. was at all. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's get to Derek Gannon. Always good hearing from Derek, especially that he's over at Sophic or Sophic uh, and getting to check out some really awesome weaponized uh, weapon systems that'll be used in the future. Yeah, all the high tech. We're on the uh, line with Derek Gannon. He's down in Tampa at the Sophic conference. Uh, Derek Gannon, he's a uh, 18 Delta Special Forces medic who served in 5th Special Forces Group. And... Uh, you know, he's also a soft rep writer and writes a lot about Africa-centric security issues. And Derek's Tears Cure Cancer, uh, he won the Battle of the Bulge against the Nazis. <laughs> that happened. It was kind of like Captain America and the Howling Commandos, if you ever saw that film. Pretty it's, much. It was basically just like yeah. that, except like picture Derek's face on top of Captain America's uh, body. Uh, yeah. So anyway, Derek, do you want to tell us a little bit about on um, the SOFIC conference, what it, what it is and kind of what the vibe is down there this year? Yeah. Well, for, I need to clarify something first. It's not my head on Captain America's body. It's my head on like a dad bod. So let's <laughs> don't get it. Don't get too excited. It's, it's, I'm not no, chiseled no, out of American steel. No but, super yeah, serum. Pretty much a dad bod. No, no, I'm not super soldier. I, I, I fall down and scrape myself a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, 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 so the SOFIC conference is, is, is basically an, the industry conference where a lot of the, the, the big names like Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, you know, SIG, any kind, of, any kind of industry that you can think of from the military industrial complex is basically, is basically present at this, con- this, this conference itself, which I kind of dubbed the Commando Con because it's basically like a, like a Comic Con for warfighters. But it's it's more of a, 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 a you know a business casual kind of vibe. These, these industry leaders are coming and meeting a lot of key commanders, key you know groups of folks that are willing and are looking for new products to take take to their guys back to SOCOM special operations and, and start to use this new technology and kind of start fielding it to kind of advance the technology that we have in warfighting as we do right now. Uh, it was it's, it was a very interesting conference. It's the first time I've ever been to this as a civilian. So I was able to kind of look from the outside in with kind of like that, you know, inside kind of knowledge. And it was, it was pretty fascinating, Dag. It was, it was pretty interesting. What, uh, I mean, what do you think is the current trends going on as far as that interface between private industry and the special operations community? What are the new technologies that are on the horizon that they're looking at in the, uh, the next coming years? The, every every part of what I saw, the the advancements is, is robotics. It's, it's high technology. It's it's AI, virtual reality, uh, everything to include even down to you know aim point four power scopes is starting to integrate that STEM type of advancements in high tech that we have now, where we can kind of push what we what we're seeing in the civilian community in towards the the warfighter community. Uh, for instance. Uh, Unmanned ground vehicles, unmanned aerial vehicles, swarm bots, anything that you can think of that you've seen from, I, I hate to say this, but from Call of Duty to Battlefield 4, even to Star Wars, some of the, some of the helmet uh, augment, uh, the, the new night vision goggles and everything that augments for the new helmet ops core stuff is co- sort of like 
taking the the stuff that we kind of grew up on in the sci-fi and ma- and manifesting it into reality. It's it's the, I think we're being pushed really into the unmanned robotics, uh, you know, uh, you know, robotic pack mules all the way down to these 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 highly highly deployable, very lightweight, throwable five pound robots that are basically they can go in and clear an entire room for you, paint a picture in 3D, and then on the fly, the operators can integrate you know with a heads up display. And basically, just hit a target with with the entire thing completely mapped. I mean, they know the whole thing in in real time. It's the, the tech. It, it's very, very, very robotic centric. How um, drones are the drones are the new hotness? Are you seeing any uh, you know forward thinking or any advancement as far as you know what back in the nineties? I think they called the Land Warrior system, and then there's a bunch of like future soldier programs to integrate like a heads up display into the infantry or special operations, you know, ground troop. Um, and then there's uh, also, you know, all these issues with them. Like they keep coming up with these like weird proprietary tablets and stuff like that. So I was wondering if you've seen them um, kind of coming up with some better solutions to bring that information to the actual soldier on the ground and anything that actually looks viable. Actually, I remember the land warrior project. That was a giant Mechanism. I remember how heavy that that those devices looked. Uh, there were several the several I- iterations of it too. Uh, in yeah. the last you know twenty years. Well, I think I think what I can tell you right now is that some of the widgets that I played with, all of that stuff is now handheld. Mm-hmm. Think of think of your average smartphone. That's the new technology that's coming through. Like for instance, I sat with Endeavor Robotics with the with the unmanned ground vehicles. Everything is integrated with a touchpad. Because you have to understand that we're old, Jack. We really are old. I mean, I love technology, but <laughs> the new operators that are coming through, they can literally, you know, for, for someone like you and I that would take, let's say, a, an Android-based smartphone and try to track a target with that, it would probably take us five minutes to get a weapon system that's, yeah. that's integrated with this this. this, this yeah, we, we, we grew up well. with Walkmans, and these kids, they grew up with tablets. Right. This, these, these, I mean, I'm talking like these guys, they had a guy, a kid there, I shouldn't call him a kid, he's probably like 30, but he had a kid there that could, that could point, click, push, squeeze, expand everything within seconds and acquire a target and adjudicate it all off of a, off a handheld smartphone. Well, we're we're already seeing it. Your You've seen those pictures of the, uh, the Kurds in, in northern Syria, and they're using tablets to de- designate targets for U.S. airstrikes. And that is exactly what I saw. Like, lit- these these tablets are inside an internal, what we call a mesh network, which is basically an internal, if you will, a GSM or a, for it's, it's like a like a LAN, right? Network. Yeah, it's like a it's like a Wi-Fi LAN network yeah. that is encrypted, 256-bit encryption, which is amazing. The, the digital handshake is, is is robust and it's two-factor authentic, authentic, authentication, and it's it's basically proprietary to that LAN network that these. These warfighters can can literally be in real time speaking with one another and controlling robotic robots, drones, and uh, robotic weapon systems, and and instantaneously just with a, a with a point and click, a finger touch, and a, the drone moves to a pre designated. I'll give you an example. Endeavor Robotics has a has a what I call the Johnny Five looking robot. What's interesting about this thing is that the the operator can use a swarm bot, if you will. To map 3D virtual reality, virtually map the target in three as, in three dimensions, find the targets, fix the targets, upload the targets to the Johnny Five. Johnny Five takes off, finds cover and concealment itself, 
and then pops up to adjudicate up to six targets with three to five three to five second bursts from a 240 to a 50 caliber. So on are, point on target, and all the operator does is just hit execute. So it's basically it, for the older generation. It's basically it's basically like command and conquer. So we're, we're getting to the Separate point form. where there's going to be autonomous androids that do our door breaching and room clearing for us. Well, that was sort of the concept that, of what the, uh, the UGVs were, were, are, were kind of pushing towards, uh, these, these cat-like uh, robots that can go in and be able to maneuver in through a, through a very high-threat environment, be able to absorb rounds for the, for the human element that's behind them. And yes, yeah, so you're basically not so much autonomous. I mean, that, that is the, that is the future. Is the is the just advanced the AI robots that you give a command to, and not only that, but I also saw uh, there was a, another company there that had a uh, UAV that could actually control on ground ground drones and aerial drones as an autonomous you know robotic command and control center. The uh, uh, human being, let's say back in the states, gives this giant robe the. the the big brain, if you will, the big brain robot. The bug brain. The task conditions at standard of the Warno, and then this big brain robot subtasks it out to his little minions, and they can basically run through, like, you know, Terminator and do what they need to do as long as... And, but there still is a human element involved. There still is an operator involved. There still is a... When I say operator, uh, I, I know that sounds like soft, but... There's a human brain behind towards, it. There's a human brain to that, and we're also starting to push towards, and there was another th- interesting uh, kind of a, a conference that General Thomas, SOCOM, the, the commander, gave, was that the, the, new, the new warfighters, come, they're looking at the latest the generation that hasn't graduated from high school and college yet that are wanting to go into special operations. These, these young kids have been completely integrated with every tech that you can possibly think, and they're, they're able to program on the fly. So you're basically looking at Operators that are going to be able to not only advance themselves in cyber offensive cyber operations, but also kinetic operations and commingle those with their robot with their robot pals. So, I mean, we might even be getting rid of the you know the, the do you war think, dogs. Do you think that that's something? Or, um, I guess you could say. Do you think that's a realistic goal? Something that a uh, unwieldy bureaucracy like. Um, you know, the Pentagon and to a lesser extent, you know, SOCOM, which is like 70,000 people at this point, do you think they're actually going to be able to accomplish this? Well, okay. So I sat in the brief, let's, okay, let's, let's talk about bureaucracy for a second and technology when it comes to war fighting. I sat into, I sat in the Talos briefing, very, no pictures were allowed and you couldn't record the, it was, it's a secretive program, the Talos, the, the, the tactical operator, you know, yeah. suit, the Iron Man suit. And I sat into that, and I basically listened to it. Now, that thing is 500 to 600 pounds. It's, it's a giant system. It's a huge system. And, and basically the, the essence of this is that the briefing that we were getting from Colonel Miller was they, the, the main focus of the Talos suit is to put, it's to put special operations, special, special operators who are adept at direct action. So now you know we're talking about the Tier 1 units that they need to have a suit that they're able to nimbly move through a CQB environment in close quarters combat. And me coming from a direct action background, I'm looking at this giant suit and I have no clue how anyone's going to be able to move nimbly. <laughs> but if I've been, but this, 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 the system is the system. And he was very forthright. This, this is still, this still is in concept phase. Every new advent, they come up with the tallow system. They have to re 
engineer the entire suit around this new widget that's been plugged into into the system or hypothesized into the system. So they have working functional portions of the Talos suit. So back to the bureaucracy is what we're looking at is, is he was very honest. He said, we were probably not going to field the Talos system in, for another 15 years. So we're looking at 2025, 2027 before we, have a, before we actually have a direct action team, a tier one team, who's been completely outfitted with the Talos system. They're not even looking at having a fully functional, fully operational one suit, one fully operational suit with a blade of armor, titanium plating, all of the, all of the, the, the EMG software, the, the electromagnetic uh, gradients, the, the sensor software, it's a completely integrated system. They're not looking to have anything like that fully operational until, until late August 2018, and that is even tentative because technology keeps out, outpacing what the Talos system tries to implement. Yeah, my, so it's, a very, uh, it's a very fluid system. My sources... So then you start to think of the bureaucracy. This is McRaven's child. This is McRaven's idea, the Iron Man yes. suit. The exoskeleton suits, exoskeleton outfitted suits were actually another uh, major draw at Sofic as well. There's other companies like Lockheed Martin has a very, very, has already has a functional uh, exoskeleton suit that's been tested. Uh, it's been tested by some of the uh, upper echelons and SOCOM, some operational guys, and they absolutely love it. For instance, uh, I was able to sit with Lockheed Martin in the, the the director of the program basically said he put this on a he put this on an operator. Then they were doing a briefing, and while he was while Lockheed Martin was actually talking to this operator's commander, within five minutes this guy was doing plyo jumps. Now when I say plyo jumps is that crossfit thing where you jump up to a higher level. This guy did from from standing doing absolutely nothing. He just jumped up from the floor to the top of a table, and he turned around. And he goes, "I want one." But that. <laughs> where you see Lockheed Martin and the Talos systems taking the operator's input directly as each evolution comes through. And it looks like, it looks like the Talos system is, is, is a giant sandwich to eat, whereas Lockheed Martin has found something that they can actually use. It's functional, and it's already in the, it's already in the phase four of testing. They've got operators running through sewer systems and you know going up 60 to 90 degree gradients without... They're heat without even loss of energy. Now I'm saying energy. I'm talking about the human factor. They want they want to maximize they want to maximize the metabolic efficiency and output of the of, of the person wearing the exoskeleton uh, you know uh, mechanism. And a lot of this is being pushed. If you remember, Jack, a lot of this this technology that started as warfighter technology is being pushed towards paraplegics and veterans that have you know lost limbs, can, no longer can walk. And that was another thing I really liked about Lockheed Martin was we want to take care of the warfighter with the exosuit from their time in the service all the way out if they do get injured all the way to the, the aftercare for the, the veterans. Yeah, affairs, it's, it's uh, like the uh, pot office. of Deus Ex. I, it kind of is. It's, uh, thank you. That's kind of like where we're going. It was very ghost in the shell-like. It yeah. was very like... <laughs> We have the technology. We can, we can, we can perfect you. It was like the million dollar man for us older, older, older folks. You know, the six million dollar man. Excuse me, that was, that was even more expensive. What I that. what uh, I was told about the uh, Talos suit was that it's basically a boondoggle that's not going to happen. 
but that SOCOM is hoping hoping that they'll be able to develop associated technologies within that program. Uh, like I was told about things like a, uh, a grenade that causes seizures, for instance. Like there's all sorts of different things that are plugged into Talos that they're hoping, you know, it's like earmarks or something like that, that they're hoping to get out of the program, even if the, the suit itself doesn't ever uh, mature. I, well, my opinion is the suit will mature. And here's why, because that's another thing that they also spoke on, too, is that uh, uh, let's go back to the, the, the times of big, the fat man and little boy when we were developing the mm-hmm. atomic weapon. The government went and decided to start asking the, you know, colleges and universities, MIT, you know, academia, how, to, how can you help us develop these types of weapons? And we've been kind of pushed away from that during the GWAT. And for, for several years, we just kind of, we, you know, we have DARPA. We, we, try to do, we try to keep everything in-house. We try to bring the scientists into the, into the government employ. And what I've noticed is that you're actually right. The, the Mark II, Mark III, A, B, and C, that was the boondoggle portion. That was, that was the, the, the pie in the sky. Hey, let's put some cool guy kit on folks until they realize that a blade of armor, when you start to make, you know, making armor is easy when it's, when it's just a square. When you try to make, try to round it and curve it out, that becomes more expensive and it also becomes more heavier. This suit right now at five to 600 pounds is the lightest it's ever been. Now wrap your head around that. So what SOCOM is doing, and I think what the Pentagon is doing is, they're going back to that old World War II post, post-war kind of model where they reach out and incentivize the STEM programs in universities to say, hey, here's a challenge. What can you do? That's why they're trying they're to uh, snuggle up to Silicon Valley in the last couple months to see all this so. stuff in the press. Very much so. But I think that's a good idea. I think, I think that I, think we, I, I have an opinion about Russia and, China and Chinese Russian and Chinese technology, it's being at least 10 to 20 years ahead of us. And what those, those two countries do is that they, they lean heavily on the academia side and incentivize these universities and, well, there's, and you know, these, there's these also no, For them, there's no separation between church and state, so to speak. So, I mean, in China, right. like, what is private industry? It's nominally under the control of the Communist Party. So <laughs> there's, no, there's no difference between the two. What I found interesting about what this, how, this, how SOCOM was briefing the Talos suit is that they are actually, that's how they've, they've changed the mold sort of to just, and they're inviting industry in mm-hmm. with the caveat that the warfighter portion of what you're creating, we would like to be proprietary, obviously secret to the Special Operations Command, but the, third, the second and third and fourth order effects of the technology that's, that the government's paying these industry, academia to, to kind of develop, kind of giving them a blank check, if you will, to kind of figure out new tech to kind of green an edge, is they're saying that you can take that, you can take that technology, you can take what you proprietize and create civilian applications. A lot of industry was there to kind of glean that stuff off. You know, this exosuit is an amazing, amazing advancement, because think about it. We use an example of Central Africa, where you can't get forklifts or, or heavy, heavy equipment to, to develop and build you know, build out some spots in like, their near dish use Africa, for example. He said, you know, Bald Industries or Lockheed Martin Industries or even General Dynamics, if they wanted to get into the exosuit game, they could develop this for civilian applications where they could get this, these engineers into these exosuits where they could clear out and, build, and lift, you know, tonnage of equipment without having to put a, you know, a diesel footprint, an environmental footprint anywhere other than the exosuit. 
Well, I mean, the exosuit, doesn't it going to run on some sort of like gasoline battery powered hybrid engine or something like this? Oh, okay. So that's where, okay. That's where my question started coming from my standpoint of, of having to clear room. You and I have been through rooms, Jack. We understand that majority of the operators, you're, you're laden with about what? 200 pounds of the man himself. Then you add armor, which is 50 to 80 pounds, plus his kit, plus double, double load ammo. You're looking at about 280 to 300 pound operator trying to nimbly move through a room quickly, rapidly, and adjudicate targets. I know that for, for, from my perspective, and, and the, the way that they were selling the Talos suit was this was the, you know, a, a direct action augmented 26-plated you know, armored suit with a lot of bells and whistles and, and heads-up displays and ISR feeds, live feeds, all these other things. And then a question came from an Australian press guy. I don't, I, I, his name escapes me, but it was a great question. He, uh, he asked, what would happen if, if, if these gentlemen were hitting a target, let's say these suits are doing, and they get hit with an EMP? What happens then? And that was a fantastic question because how the hell do you get out of this suit? Because what I, what I was looking at was a 26-plated, you know, first of all, the operators in this full-body Lycra suit, full-body. Yeah, right? what happens Pads if they fall everywhere. in the water? <laughs> what, that's, another, that's another question. So these are all the questions that were being asked. So then the, the Talos team kind of posited the question back because there was, there was STEM industry folks in that room, and they basically said, the question goes back to you guys. How can we? And my question, follow-up question to the EMP was, how fast can these guys get out of the suit? Because I know if the suit dies up, Murphy's Law. All right, you, you, you slap around 26 plates of armor around someone, there's still low percentage soft areas of, of where, you know, tissue and flesh could still be penetrated by something. Plus, Murphy's Law, will, you know, that's going to happen. So how does the operator effectively get out of a suit? If it's 600 pounds, he's fallen, he's, he's, a, he's a Buick sitting, sitting in the middle of a combat zone. He's, he's just a dead stick. So now he said, the, you know, the briefing was, well, we want to be able to rapidly get the, get the operator out of the suit if there's a fatal, fatal you know, catastrophic error where the suit stops working. All right. Well, now you've got, you got an operator in a combat zone running around in a full-body Lycra suit. He yeah, has nothing and, on him but, a, but a, a black ninja suit and his weapon system that's integrated into the Talos system. It's not integrated. I mean, it's still, it's still a rifle and, and an AR-style weapon or whatever they're going to be using. How do we protect that guy? What happens there? And it goes back to the power pack. Now, the power pack, it was interesting. We, he didn't really touch along on the fuel portion. I was more interested in how you're going to recharge the 12 giant batteries that are these giant mini, they look like uh, motorcycle batteries. There's 12 of them in, in a row in this power pack on top of the brain, which is a ECM computer suite, your hydraulics, and then below that is the compressed, is a, is a, is a compressor, a very a miniaturized compressor that pushes fluid through the bodysuit to cool or heat the operator. That's a lot of moving parts. That thing also weighs about 150 pounds. So I'm starting to think, okay, what's the operating, what's the max operating time for this? And right now they have it up to an hour. An hour. <laughs> so snap TSTs are not an option for the tallow suit. This has to be a deliberate assault. And it also has to meet you have to land on the X, and you have to be out of there in an hour, because then what happens? And you have a bunch of dudes who just start powering down. Wow. And this is, and this is this 600 pounds is not including ammunition, equipment, medical gear, 
engineer stuff. You know, who's the breacher? Is, is, this, is the breacher tallow suit larger so he can donkey kick the shit out of the side of the wall? I mean, yeah, the last I knew, the last I knew, there was a breacher model and an assaulter model. Uh, that may have changed, though. And then another guy brought up the, and, I, and he was this was an industry guy. He brought up these like with the advent of, of women in special operations, which it was there was a collective groan through the room because there was there's that one guy. <laughs> you know there's there's boobies in special ops. How do we so they get, they can't wear the tallow suit, right? Well, Seriously, that was what he brought suit. up. <laughs> the, he he basically said, well, with the advent of women coming to special operations, uh, how do you see them? How do you see the tallow suit fitting them? And you know, there's a, somewhat of a smallish, slight collective groan to the room, but the Talos team answered it very eloquently. He said, well, right now, these Talos systems are for the top elite. Now, we're talking about tier one guys, okay? These guys have made it to the top of the top. Guys are, it doesn't matter. By 2027, 20, 2027, we don't know what special operations is going to look like. We, don't, we have no idea who's going to be in it. But he basically said that there is no issue, male or female, there's no issue with the Talos system because each tallow system will be at social, I mean, their social, these, these things will be assigned to these operators. It, it, the entire system will be developed around them. Yeah. They'll go into a 3D, you know, imaging where the, their entire body is, is 3D rendered and the entire suit is built around them. Now, I don't know how much that's going to cost per operator. So it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if it's a male or female. And yeah, I, yeah. I, that was, it, the question was interesting. I wanted to bring it up on the radio because I just thought, well, I mean, what are you really worried about? And, you know, I don't understand what you'd be worried about. Why would you care if a female's where if the fe- if a, if a female operator is is at a position where she's being outfitted with a tallow suit? I think she's made her bones. I think she I think she's earned the tallow suit. So uh, it, it just was an interesting question, but they didn't have any mock- They had the mock-ups there. They didn't have anything other than like, just the engineer staff. I could see this having an application in conventional warfare, but for counterterrorism, I just I don't see it, man. A five hundred pound suit, and you're going to use that for surgical raids, hostage rescues, and, th- and that doesn't make any sense to me. Like I said, see that that's what the, that's what the crop briefed. He said that the, the end state is to have this suit as nimbly as move as nimbly as the operator, and that comes down to the EG, EMG sensors. Those sensors will the sensors are completely integrated into this bodysuit. And what they do is they is they they pick up on the electrical electrical connectivity of the of muscle switching. Yeah, but it's bullshit because is, I mean, if you're a six hundred pound suit plus a two hundred pound dude, I mean, it's going to go through the floor in a lot of these third world countries. I mean, <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think of that. Like second, you you'd be landsliding yourself all the way through the. Yeah, third floor. you won't even be able to make it up the, the stairs. I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Like I said, man, it's it's a concept. It's a concept. It's it's they're going to push it through. And I honestly believe here's the here's the positive I see about the Talos system is that the technology that's going to be pumped into that to try to make this work is going to we're going to see a lot of advances in technology yeah, yeah. in the industry, law enforcement, any, even the conventional side. Now, uh, uh, one of the one of the other attendees at the Talos uh, briefing kind of brought this up. They're like, well, is this like a is this like a one size fits all kind of thing? And, you know, the Talos team kind of laughed. He's like, you will not see this system in AIT. You won't go to your, you know, you won't see a conventional soldier finish AIT with, you know, with in six weeks of the Talos, you know, being trained and using the Talos and then getting it issued to him in the 82nd, you know, like you get like a gun, like, here, here you go. 
it's it, it, you know like you're just getting a used tallow system where you've got to learn it and 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 augment it because the the the, the tallow engineer I spoke with said that these things are mapped, everything is mapped down to the to the millimeter of the of the body structure of the operator. So he said he was he put a, another guy's suit on because they had a test subject with six that day. He was somewhat of the same size. He said the suit didn't operate as efficiently because there was the connection points throughout the suit weren't the same as as the as the test subject. So there's that problem. You, this it's to be very difficult to field this mm-hmm. now. Lockheed Martin's exos, exoskeleton, uh, you know, metabolic optimizer, uh, uh, the, the their lower portion, the the leg portion that they that they developed. I could I could see that by 2027 being a fully feelable, conventional use uh, system. I could see that more than the Talos. The Talos is more of the, yeah, it's cool you got bionic legs, but I've got this 500 pound Iron Man suit and I'm I'm bad as fuck. So. Like I said, this is this is well, well, well down down the spectrum, down the scope. But the drone software, the drone technology, Swarmbox, everything—it was amazing. It was like playing Call of, It was like a like being in Call of Duty: Advanced Warfare. There was, it's just, there was, it was, and these were functional. These were, these weren't just like mock-up models. These these things were flying around the convention hall. I mean, the clicks and words that I that I'm telling you, there was, everything was robotic. Everything was high tech. Everything was. You know, a, a soft English voice like your GPS would tell you, turn right. This was, you know, shoot that guy in the face. I mean, it's very pleasant, very, <laughs> very integrative. It's, it's the new, the new, the new warfighter is going to have a lot of bells and whistles that he's got to be plugging into his, you know, his, his ops core. So there's the trainable. And that's what I kept asking these guys. How, what's the trainability of this? Because Joe is inherently dumb and he's going to break everything. Even the smartest of door kickers, he's gonna, they're, they're gonna break it because it's not theirs. It's like when we were over in Iraq, Jack. They gave us those, the, the F-150s. They're not ours. We're gonna trash them. You know, it's, it's, it's unfortunately, it's, it's, it's what they do. And, and uh, what I was, an- the answer back was, at every evolution, every step, even the tiniest of steps, they take that new step, they take that new evolution, and they go right to their operator test bed and like, what do you think? And these guys. They'll say no, that's bullshit, or yeah, that's, that's that's actually cool. And what I what I heard from the versus the Talos versus the Lockheed Martin was Lockheed Martin's exoskeleton is getting a lot of thumbs up, whereas the Talos is everyone's kind of like good concept. I like what I'm seeing in video. It's really cool looking. Uh, how heavy is it? Well, it's 500 pounds. The first thing I thought was, well, that thing's gonna die on me. How do I get out of it? Yeah, and I'm running around in man it's like the It's like the land know. warrior system. Like it's going to have to go through several generations, several different iterations of the same program before they get something that's workable. Yeah. And uh, the Lockheed Martin exoskeleton suit, that uh, they, uh, I think next month, what he told me was they haven't jumped it yet. Static line uh. is fine. Now he was telling me he's got bad, you know, he's a, he was a 52, I think, I shouldn't say that. I mean, he was an older guy. He's around my age. We all have bad knees. And he said he took, this, he took the latest system home and he decided to jump off of his staircase down to the floor, just from top, second floor to the first floor. Not an issue. Didn't even feel it. And he was able to just leap around the room. And this is, this is something that's already able to be used. And they're, they're using a proprietary battery source, which is kind of the same size as RC car batteries. You know, uh, and, and they're able to because of the kinetic energy, the kinetic movement of the exoskeleton suit, it, it maximizes and it, it, 
it becomes efficient that the energy use becomes efficient. So they get a long, they get a longer use out of it. And hot swapping batteries is simple. It's it's easy. It's like uh, those you know cordless uh, drills. You know that battery runs out, you just hot swap into another one. It's kind of a sim. It's, I'm I'm simplifying it. Obviously, it's more technological than that. But it's, it's as, from an operator standpoint, carrying around you know twelve extra motorcycle batteries to throw into the Talos when I go down in an yeah, hour yeah. versus a six to twelve hour operating schedule on on uh, a four battery pack where I can just switch those battery packs out. Yeah, there's weight there, but the exosuit, the exoskeleton suit from Lockheed Martin augments that and creates a an easier environment for them to carry a heavier load. Interesting. Interesting. It's, it's pretty interesting. And yeah. I've I've been invited they're in Florida. And I'm, I'm going to tell you this first. I've been invited uh, next month to go to the Lockheed Martin's uh, test uh, center, and they're going to let me run through the exosuit. That's so awesome, I'll be man. jumping on stuff, <laughs> kicking doors in, and running around. So I'll, be, I'll definitely be doing a report, <laughs> report on that. So That's I was, awesome. I was pretty blessed to kind of be invited up cool. to do that. So Talos, not so much. There's like, here's a, here's a pamphlet. Okay. It's really neat. It's color. So. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thank you for uh, the update on the SOFIC conference, Derek. It's been pretty good. I learned, yeah. I learned a lot, too. It's interesting to hear what all the uh, latest and greatest is over there. Thanks for coming on, man. Appreciate it. It's a great update yeah, no on, on this conference and everything. Um, you guys know Derek. I mean, you read, read his articles, but I always like to make sure that people are familiar if they're new listeners and all that stuff. Um, <laughs> and you could follow Derek on Twitter at Mike6, but spelled, of course, M1K3. 51X, do I have that right? That is absolutely correct. Off the top of my head, killed it. Because um, you've been having to repeat that for years. Yeah. Any <laughs> anything else that you're uh, promoting before we uh, get out of here? No, I just, it's been a really interesting time at Sofic. I'm just, you know I'm nerding out. So that's nice. pretty much all that cool tech stuff. That's about Great. it. I'm glad you guys can make it down there this year. Yeah. Thanks for sending me. Absolutely. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. All right, guys. Take care. Joining us on the show for the first time is Nick Kaufman. Nick's been a writer for the site for a while and has actually contributed to the show in ways that uh, some of you might not even know. Um, He got us the hookup with Marine Corps Major Fred Galvin for the episodes that we did talking about his uh, his issues with uh, supposed war crimes and getting into the real story of what happened and you did some really in-depth articles about that uh you could check out those episodes in the archive uh episodes 198 and 206 if you haven't uh nick served five years as a marine corps network operator serving with the eighth marine regiment and later with marforcom and he now actually holds a master's degree in it management uh, you have a book out from a few months back called The Other Marines, God's Plan and Provision for Two Marines. So it's great to have you on, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. It's uh, good to finally be on. Um, you know, I, I know it fell through a few times, and the only disappointment for me is uh, I had this master plan to have BK crash the show with me and not tell you. <laughs> so you've since had him on as a guest, but it's, uh, it's good to finally be here. Yeah, no, BK is great, and it's always good to have him yeah, on. Yeah, thanks we'll- for coming on. Yeah, we'll have him back on soon. Uh, so I guess before we even get into the book itself, you you said you didn't mind talking about this. So your book, the publisher of your book, The Other Marines, just recently got into some hot water, I guess you could say. Yeah, you could say that. Um, so the, the company is, is out of business. Um, 
I'll leave. I mean, it's not hard to find. If you do a, do a search for the book, you'll see who the publisher is. But just to keep myself out of hot water, I won't say their name. But basically, the uh, the president and then the CEO, who is, is the son of the president, um, there I think it was eight felony counts that they were brought against them. Um, it was like embezzlement, fraud, and uh, several others. But uh, they're, they're going to be in jail for a long time, I'm That's pretty sure. Amazing. So. So, so as a result, I'm not going to be plugging the book. Um, okay. I'm happy to, I'm happy to talk about it, but uh, but basically, yeah, I mean, it was um, something that uh, I, I started off, you know, just kind of putting my thoughts down as I was getting close to the end of my enlistment, and uh, I thought it would be kind of cool to have something like that for for my kids and you know just you know family and things like that. And um, it's a as Jack would know. Uh, the the book gig is a tough one to get into yeah. and um my options are pretty limited so i knew from the start that the publisher was a little shady and they, they had a reputation for, for not being uh too honest with their authors but um basically the the president who i talked to at a certain point he he's a former marine and uh i'm pretty sure his son was too for that matter but he basically instead of paying thousands of dollars to, to publish my book, um, it, it was like a few hundred basically. So I figured I didn't have anything to lose, even though they had a bad reputation. And, and, you know, frankly, at this point with the company out of business and, um, my, my book basically no longer on the market. Um, I made a few bucks back that I put into it and I'm glad I'm not those guys. Cause they're going to be in, they're going to be, uh, in prison for quite a while. Well, I mean, if we want to, you know, be honest here about publishing books, because you've self-published, Jack, before we started the interview, Jack, and I were just kind of talking about this, and you were basically saying Nick could just put out his own book through Amazon the way you did, and and there would be no issues. Yeah, I mean, what I'd say to, to you, Nick, and to anybody else, really, who's thinking about publishing is just, like, ethically, money is supposed to flow to the writer. The writer isn't supposed to pay a publisher to publish their book like that like right away that should like please don't do that yeah yeah looking back on it so the book actually didn't get released until a few months after i started writing for you all but i didn't even i wasn't even on with you guys yet when the book deal was already done so timing wise it would have been nice if i could uh talk to you guys you know before i signed the deal but it, it all kind of worked out in the end because it's i had a uh a literary agent explained to me like if you're not famous infamous or have some crazy story that needs to be told then your chances of getting it published are are slim to none so so yeah i would agree with that um from my own experience if i ever decide to do another book it's going to be going that route and uh you know well now now that the publisher now that the publisher's out of business i mean do the book rights revert back to you so that's it's funny because even after they were out of business and you know the the attorney general for the state that they're in had gone after them even after all that they basically set up a uh, they sent out an email to all of the writers that said hey send us a check for fifty bucks and sign this agreement and we'll send you a copy of your you know like the um, basically we'll send you all of your materials and it'll be yours to keep that doesn't sound uh, right all right Jack no. no and and <laughs> and what they actually found was that they were actually taking that. The $50 times, however many, I would imagine, thousands of writers did that, they actually took that 50 bucks and it went straight into their personal account, not even like the company account. So That's even awesome. that was a scam. So Dude, this my, is my a philosophy shady this publisher. Is, oh, yeah, big time. So my philosophy at this point is 
if uh, you know, if I decide that I want to publish my book, uh, you know, through uh, like Amazon or something like that, they can come after me if they want. But I don't. I think it's going to be tough to do that from jail. So. I, I, I think you think should do. Happen. I think you should do it. Just if you have the rights to the book, <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. You yeah. just could do it yourself. And from what you're saying, Jack, as someone who's done it yourself with uh, your Descartes novels, he doesn't even need to put any money up front. The book is yeah. is done. They'll press it for you, and if people want to buy it, you'll get the profits from that. Yeah, yeah I've already said to yeah. Nick, I'll help him out with his audio book, man. Yeah, <laughs> no, you should. Yeah, look, that's, you should hey, if, if that. it ever comes to that, I'll let you know, man. I, I really do appreciate that too. Yeah, no problem. Um, How do you feel, though, about, uh, you know, this isn't just a book publisher. Like, it's got to be kind of weird, a Marine screwing over a fellow Marine. Yeah, so that's actually kind of leading me into something that is pretty important to me as far as my work with SoftRep, which is, at this point, I mean, it's not exclusive to Marines, but a lot of the the articles that I've been working on, uh, especially recently, are are related to me just looking out for other Marines. And, uh, even even when I was in, but especially since I'm out now, uh, I've never really bought into the whole Semper Fi, always faithful thing. Like, I hate when guys say that to me, and I, I don't ever say it either. Um, basically, I saw enough when I was in the Marines to know that, you, you know, your brothers are, you know, they're always going to be there for you. But um, as far as everybody else, I mean, they, they don't really care about you. Like, I guess in combat, I think that would still apply. Like, you know, you're not just going to leave somebody there uh, if they need, you know, if they if they can help you, they will. But as far as just man-to-man personal life and stuff like that, it's uh, it's a dog-eat-dog world. And um, I, I'm not really surprised that these scumbag publishers did what they did. Um, and, again, I, I, don't, I don't really hold it against them because I kind of got the last laugh. I mean, I I feel bad for some of the publishers or some of the authors that uh, spent, like, thirty grand, I think, in some cases on – the, the rights wow. for their book and then actual books and then they didn't get a single book um let alone you know a dollar from sales i mean they, they didn't get anything so that's wild. i i think i made out pretty well i mean for, so this was like a this was like a, a fairly large publisher i mean you're talking about a good number of authors yeah i mean it, it was it was not a, a small small publisher in the sense of, of their, uh, their client base. I mean, they had, they had a lot of work, so, uh, it's, but it was it's all, be it was all kind of like a Ponzi scheme. It sounds like, yeah, it, it really does. Um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm fortunate. Like I, I feel bad for a lot of these authors that are out big money, but for me, um, I got the upper hand on the deal. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to go after them for anything. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm content just to move on from it, but, it is kind of a bummer because the, the reason I wrote the book, um, again, other than just kind of having something for my kids to read one day, is um, just the different side of the Marine Corps. So I was I was an infantry support in uh, my MOS. I was a network operator, like you said, and um, you know it, it's it's a different world from you know I was with an infantry unit, but um, obviously our our roles are much different and. Uh, you know, the, our our little world within the Marine Corps is is a lot different too. So I just wanted to kind of shed some light on that, and then then I, I talked to a few of my other friends that were in you know whether it was an MP or an EOD technician or whatever it is, and you know I kind of wanted to get their story out there too because there's not a lot. I mean, especially for Marine Corps EOD, I don't think there's a single book out there. So um, I basically. Uh, the book is about my time in the military, obviously, and, and then uh, a good friend of mine, his name is Sean, he's an EOD tech, uh, really good guy. And, um, you know, it's it's 
I thought it was interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, if anybody's interested at this point in, in taking a look, you know, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and, uh, or you can email me if you can find all my contact info on SoftRep and, uh, I'll be happy to share it with you because at this point I'm not, I'm not in it for the money. That's for sure. Well, what's, what's the book actually about? So, uh, it's basically the, the Sean and I, we, we met whenever, uh, I, I was, I mean, he's probably 10 years older than me, I think, but I, I remember him from my hometown, uh, kind of growing up, we knew each other, uh, through church and some mutual friends. But, uh, when I got stationed at Camp Lejeune, um, in North Carolina, the, him and his wife were actually living out there and he, he was stationed there too. So, um, they, they kind of became like a second family and, uh, you know, would cook me meals and, and take care of me and just check in from time to time. And, uh, you know, he, his time in the, in the military started off, um, slightly, it was just before nine 11. Uh, he was actually an aviation ordinanceman. So he was taking care of helicopters and, um, he, while he was deployed to Afghanistan right after nine 11, he met a couple of EOD guys that I think they were basically talking about a chicken that they had captured and how they were like feeding it MREs and they were going to like fatten it up to make some like stew or something like that. And these dudes were just crazy. And he was like, I, I want to know more about these guys. Like, you know, I, I, it's not just the fact that they're crazy, but it sounds like their job's pretty cool too. So he switched from being uh, an air wing guy to an EOD technician after a few years and uh, went on a lot of deployments, um, you know, saw a lot of things. And, and in the book, it basically just talks about the selection process for that, the school that he had to go through, and then some of the deployments that he went on. So uh, I'm, just to pretty, stop you, is this book more about his story than yours or just your story it's, with it's him? It's pretty evenly split. Gotcha. So, so obviously the, the book hasn't really been at the, the front of my mind recently, obviously, but to set it up a little bit more, it's, it's basically evenly split between our decisions that led us to joining the military and then like our past throughout and then how they kind of crossed for a little bit. And then as we transitioned out, um, and then again, the, the goal is to – show a different side of the Marine Corps. Um, you know, there's a lot of recon books and regular infantry or tankers and things like that. But, uh, to my knowledge, I don't think there's anything else like it on, on the market. So, well, I'm wondering um, what's, what's the main, um, point that you tried to get out in this book and what separates it from other books of, uh, of former Marines like yourself? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not, um, I mean, it's definitely got a religious undertone to it because that's a big part of who i am and, and sure. sean too but it's not preachy and it's not uh you know it's not trying to convert anybody but it's basically just sharing our our stories and um showing how um you know our our faith in god kind of led each each step that we took in the military to uh to bring us to where we ended up with our families and everything like that um so it's it's, it's basically just kind of a testimony to show um, you know, how, how God led us through some of these crazy decisions that we made and, and situations we were in. And then, um, you know, the second point is for it to just get a little insight into the side of the Marine Corps that most people don't know about. I think that's cool, man. I mean, there's been authors on the show who faith is a big part of their life, guys like Chris Peranto and other guys who don't have faith as a part of their life. D- does your faith get shaken when once you see combat as a Marine? Well, so for Sean, definitely, uh, he, uh, he was in, I was never really in any, any hairy situations. Um, when I deployed in 2009, it was, uh, it was pretty slow over there. Like my, I remember my last, the last convoy that I went on was, was with an infantry battalion that 
they were trying to get a lot of their boots combat action ribbons. So they basically, you know, as far as the setup of the convoy and how we did things, they, they changed a lot, basically making us a target trying to pull the bad guys out. And, uh, you know, no matter how we tried, it just seemed like it was, you know, I, I think out of 300 guys in our in my regiment, there were like, there's one purple heart and like a handful of, of combat action ribbons. So um, to, to sum it up, pretty slow deployment for me. But for Sean, yeah, I mean, he, he had, he's literally been standing on pressure plate IEDs before that didn't go off. Um, you know, things like that, just, just crazy situations. And, um, you know, there, there's a lot of that that's outlined in the book. So it's really interesting to me how uh, combat has like these diametrically opposed impact on people, uh, especially people who uh, their faith is really important to them. It seems like it either drives them further towards their faith or completely separates them away from it. And I've seen it go in both directions. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, like from just kind of speaking on Sean's behalf again in his story, I mean, he, he's in his line of work, he, he worked with a lot of guys that weren't overly religious until they were overseas. And then it, it ramped up pretty quick when you're in those situations. So yeah, it's, it's funny how it, it affects different people, you know, in different ways. I, uh, I interviewed, um, Paul Redgate, who uh, served in Fourth Ranger Company in the Korean War, and he was in the the article series I wrote about Special Forces Detachment Korea, and his account is uh, is in the beginning of that article. Um, him in the Korean War, and they assaulted a dam, and his best friend, one of his best friends, and his squad was killed, and the guy basically you know died in his arms, mm. and uh, and he said that was the day I became a Christian. His his wow. his friend's last words were, uh, I believe it was for his grace. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that'll that'll do it. I mean, I can't imagine being in that type of situation, but it's no surprise when you hear when you hear stories like that. That guys, uh, you know, I, I've served with a lot of guys that were pretty openly, um, you know, whether they're atheist or or whatever it was, and um, you know, I I don't know what they went through um, and their personal opinions of their own, but I was fortunate that. Nobody ever gave me any grief about my own personal beliefs or anything like that, and uh, it, it never caused any problems overseas. So that, that was always nice to not have to deal with that. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I feel like, and look, I'm the civilian here, but of the guys I've met, there's a pretty good mix of guys who are religious. Faith is a part of their life, and there's plenty of guys I've met who are atheist. You included, Jack, who are, <laughs> who are uh, former male. Yeah, that was in the back of my mind as I was saying that, and it's all good. Um, so I'm wondering, is, is Sean still with us or is that, did he write this book kind of on his behalf? No. Yeah. So he, he's still with us. He, he, uh, I think he had a 13 year, it was 12 or 13 years that he wrapped up, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he's, he actually lives in the same town as I do with his family and he's still got an awesome job. Um, he's still basically, he's doing EOD at a, at a, base I, I mean i won't go into it but he's he's got a job blowing stuff up still cool under much better cir- uh, you know uh circumstances and, and surroundings so well what did uh, what did he think of you telling uh the story of, of both you guys i mean honestly it was it was just more therapeutic for him than anything because uh you know when i when i first met him uh, as a marine you know he i showed up at camp lejeune while he was deployed to, I think he was in Ramadi at the time and, uh, you know, things were hopping. And, um, when he came back, I just, I just remember thinking, you know, eh, this, this guy seems 
a little high strung and, you know, pretty, pretty private guy. So I'm just, you know, even though I'm around him, I'm going to give him some space. And it wasn't until we started working on the book that I found out all the stuff he was dealing with, you know, with losing, losing teammates or just the general stress that he was under. Um, I had no idea until years later. So for him, you know, he hadn't told his wife a lot of it. Um, the majority of it, he definitely hadn't told his parents or his brother or anything like that. It was, it was all pretty fresh for him. So, um, in his case, it was, it was helpful. Um, he, he was actually really like, by the time we wrapped up the process, he felt like a, a new person, you know, that makes me wonder, like if there's anyone who ever asks him like, Hey, what type of stuff did you do in the military? Is he able to just give them what you wrote and say like, Hey, read this book. It tells my story. I know it's happened in a, in a few uh, cases since the book came out, but generally speaking, I think he pretty much just says EOD and they don't know what he's talking about, but they nod their head and say, oh, okay. <laughs> or they think about the Hurt Locker or something like that. Um, you know, he, he's, I don't think he ever really gets hounded too much. Um, he, he's pretty quiet about it in the first place. So like most, most Marines that I know, like they'll tell you they're a Marine like you don't have to you don't have to find out they'll tell you but he, he's that's a the thing i always hear guy, about so. seals more than marines <laughs> I, I haven't I heard know, as man. much about marines I think marines can give them a run for their money uh, i mean when i meet people you know who i i don't know anything about and they ask me they found out i was in the military they ask what i did in the in the military i just tell them i was in the infantry and I'll leave it at that it's like i don't know who yeah. you are i don't want to talk about it with you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i usually just say like I mean, nobody cares that I was a network operator, and technically my MOS changed a few times when I was in. Like, I'm not even sure why it just did. It just showed up in our system as something else, <laughs> even though I did the same job. But um, basically, I just, I just say I was a comm guy. You know, most people know what that means. They just, you know, instead of it try, having to explain everything, they just assume I was like a radio operator or something like that, and it's good enough for me. But you're a guy who made a pretty successful transition to from doing that to holding a master's degree in IT management. I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, it's, it definitely was. Uh, it wasn't easy, but I mean, I think it was as like the the situation I found myself in was was optimal. Um, I had a lot of like my job before I got out was lined up. I think eight months prior to my EAS. Um, so I mean, just a lot of the things that guys have to deal with after they get out were already in place before I even left. So, um, I, again, you know, just really fortunate that my, my skills translated into the profession I'm in now. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of personal regrets about, um, you know, having served in an infantry regiment and known a lot of grunts and, you know, always wanted to do that, but I never did. So I, I don't know. Sometimes I kind of, I regret it, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm thankful for the path that I took because it set me up for where I'm at now. So I try not to try try not to worry about it too much. But right on, man. Um, a lot of people really dug the interviews that we did with Marine Corps Major Fred Galvin. As yeah. I said, you wrote multiple part series on his trial and and the allegations against him. Uh, so how did you get hooked up with Fred? So uh, I think it was Desiree who was like, hey, there's some guy that says he, you know, remembers you from working at Mar4Com or something like uh, that. And he's got this story okay. and he'd really like to talk to somebody. I think he'd be, you know, probably the best option to take the story. And so we 
we talked at first and I remember him kind of laughing because I, I, I was under the impression, like I knew the general story because the uh, military times had covered it um, prior. And I kind of thought, yeah, we'll, we'll do, we'll do an article and you know, no big deal. And he was like, I don't think you really understand how, how heavy this is and how, how much. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very complicated. And, um, one of the great things I like about being with soft rep is that, you know, Jack and Brandon have never once said, nah, you better not, you know, go there or be careful with this or that. I mean, you know, if there's material that we can use in an article, um, you know, I've always gotten a green light and, uh, some of the other, like military times, not, you know, they did a great job with their series, but they didn't touch, you know, but a fraction of, of some of the unclassified materials that had just been released. So it's, uh, the, you know, there's the case of the uh, three green berets who were killed in Jordan. And, you know, I wrote a bunch of articles about that. And, uh, then what happened was the 15 six got released and the families came out and held a press conference and there's a, there's a real scandal about what happened there, that these three Green Berets were murdered. And I was shocked, absolutely shocked, by the mainstream media headline. And uh, this is almost verbatim. It was like, Green Beret, murdered Green Berets not responsible for their own deaths. And I was like, that's what you wow. took away from all of that? Really? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty bizarre. Like, I've had just enough interaction with a few major news outlets and, and some of their big editors and things like that, you know, to where I, in talking to them, I'm just, I'm blown away by how selective they are about what they care about. And often oblivious. Um, yeah. They're, they're oblivious or they just don't care because they don't see what it can do for them. Like, yeah, why should we cover this if it's not going to help us out? Or, you know, I, I, it's, it's totally backwards from the way software operates. And I really yeah, appreciate that. I really did enjoy, and I thought it was important, our interviews with uh, with uh, Fred Gavin, because I was one of those guys who I heard sort of the rumen about that Marsoc operation and how things went bad, and uh, and Fred really like blew the lid off of that and kind of talked about what actually happened out that day. And the two stories are diametrically opposed to one another. Was, it was, oh yeah, it was fascinating to listen to what he had to say about it. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know how many hours I've spent with him on the phone and even in person, and I, it, it never gets old. I mean, he's just a fascinating guy. And uh, I actually remember messaging you about the story when I first got the assignment from Desiree and asked what you thought about it. And uh, I think he said something along the lines of, like, oh, is that when those Marsoc dudes, like, shot up some yeah. village or something like that? Yeah. And it's it's crazy how, you know, that, that was the narrative. That, that was, was the that. story and, uh, that got floated out to everyone. Yeah, and like Soxent had released a, a, you know, had a media release that it was a, less than a month, I think it was, after the the incident happened and the the investigation was still getting going, and uh, they they released a, a, a press release that said, you know, this many civilians killed and um, you know this many injured and this and that, and the bottom line is like. Not only was it premature, but it was just reckless because the investigation was still ongoing for one. But after the investigation concluded, they never found bodies or anything. And like they tried to say that they didn't find brass casings from you know the, the enemy. Well, they did, uh, but just a week before NCIS was supposed to pick them up, they somehow magically got uh, destroyed in a burn pit. And there's just so many instances, you know, where it was just shady from the start and. Uh, 
it, it's amazing that uh you know to see fred's determination to you know he he was after the court of inquiry it was clear that he wasn't going to jail and they were quote unquote proven innocent but um it just shows the type of character that he has to fight for for the other six marines that were you know under his command for 10 years later he's still fighting for him to get him cleared properly you know yeah um, it's, it's unbelievable admirable. that they haven't like truly apologized or cleared their names and uh and what was it fred was saying just recently that one of the generals in charge of uh that he was under he was under this guy's command in afghanistan when it happened and the guy accidentally called fred yeah so and, and fred I, gave I him an earful get, yeah, so I don't. Fred may uh, kill me for talking about it. Well, he didn't. He said, I, Fred I said it. I won't name he, the name. He said it publicly, I think. Uh, maybe, but either way, I'll, I'll touch on it just a little bit. But basically, someone uh, heavily involved with with the outcome of of the the incident um, accidentally called Fred and basically said, you know, uh, Fred basically laid into him for ten fifteen minutes and explained. Um, the, the truth of the matter and the guy basically said well i, I subscribe to a, a different set of facts alternative facts. What he said. <laughs> and it's just mind-boggling yeah that, you know either the guy i mean he, he knows regardless whether or not he's read our article series or, or not i mean he, he was a part of it he knows what the what the deal was but he's either blatantly choosing to ignore it or he's just that twisted where he believes his own side you know like yeah he swallowed his it, own bullshit yeah, yeah the facts are the facts are the facts and you can't change it. You know, if you say you subscribe to a different set of facts, I mean, one is true and one's not. <laughs> exactly. And a, a court proved that one set was, was true. You know, I, I just don't understand it. It boggles my mind, but, but yeah, it's crazy to think that some of these guys that were involved, I mean, you've got general Nicholson over in Afghanistan. He's the, you know, uh, the top guy in Afghanistan. And, uh, he's, he's basically gotten off scot-free. I mean, in the court of inquiry, it was proven countless times that he was at best negligent and at worst, I mean, he was, you know, reckless. I mean, he, he, he made so many decisions with the investigation and how he handled the, the incident that were just mind boggling. And, you know, he, he's cruised all the way up to four stars and the top spot in Afghanistan. It, it would be really, mind. really interesting to try to get to the bottom of, you know, the big question is why, um, why this like witch hunt after Marsock and uh, Fred kind of alluded to that. He thinks it was about money. Um, in, in other words, funding. And that, I mean, to me, it sounds like it was a deliberate effort to try to sink Marsock on their first outing. I don't, I don't know what your impression is, Nick. Yeah, I don't, it's, it's hard to, you know, point to one thing specifically, but that's definitely part of it. I mean, if you remember back and it's covered in the article, um, the series, but before Marsock was set up, they had debt one. Right. And that's, you know, debt one was, they did a great job, um, on their, I, I believe it was their only, but on their, on their first deployment and, you know, I think it was Iraq. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they, they nailed it. They did a great job and the men that serve in that unit, you know, should be proud of what they did. But the, the fact is debt one is not what general or, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, is not what he asked for. He asked for Marsock. He asked, he asked for something that was much bigger, um, and much more, um, fully functioning than debt one. So from the get go, they, you know, the, the powers that be tried to, you know, they knew that they had to comply with, with, uh, Mr. Rumsfeld's, 
you know, request, but they basically tried to slow roll it and, and just, you know, be half-hearted about rolling out debt one. And he finally said, no, that's not what I asked for. You're, you're going to give me what I asked for. So they started rolling out MARSOC, but it was like they were trying to definitely from the outside, there were a lot of, uh, you know, factors that were, were up against them. But even internally, I mean, there were just a lot of things within the Marine Corps that were, were lined up against them from the start. So it, it's, I think you described it as harrowing, uh, the, the series that we worked on. But, I mean, it's just, if, if any readers haven't checked it out yet, go, go yeah. take a look and just, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, the whole, the whole series you wrote about uh, Fred Gavin and the, the Marsoc experience, definitely must read. And, um, and there's also a series about Debt One on the website written by Pete Nealon. If people are interested in checking that out, uh, that's a pretty cool story also. It's funny, too, with Fred, though. Um, you know, on one side, you could look at it and say it looks like trouble followed him around no matter where he went in the Marine Corps. But the, the truth is, you know, he, he always stood up for what was right. So no matter where he went, if he saw something that was wrong, he was not afraid to call it out and stand up for the truth. And uh, there's another really good article uh, that I worked with him on and, and a bunch of Marines from 3rd Recon Battalion. Uh, it's basically about a, a, a platoon from 3rd Recon Battalion in 2011 that they uh, they were out on patrol. They got, uh, you know, they got ambushed. And whenever they requested for uh, fires, they the commander of that battalion, he basically slow-rolled uh, a lot of decision making for about an hour, putting these guys' lives at risk, and and then he was getting advice from Fred, who was trained on using the proper munitions, to drop the appropriate ordnance on that position to help these guys out. And he basically he he literally disregarded that advice and dropped a 500 pound bomb, like well within danger close. Um, and you know it, the article talks about some of the fallout from that for those men and for Fred. So if any readers are interested in that, um, I would recommend checking that one out, too. Awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask, and I think he might have uh, given us an answer on this, but I, I don't remember. Uh, Jack, don't you remember him saying that he's had trouble with employment now, right? Because yeah. if people Google and some of Galvin, the other guys, too, that yeah, yeah this is what around. this is what comes up. So hopefully, you know, the stuff that we put out combats that a little. But what is he actually doing now? So. Uh, just to touch on a little bit more before I go into what he's doing, um, right now, the, the it's true that a lot of those guys are, are having trouble finding employment because it's you know you just do a quick web search and their names pop up, um, and then to to add to that, there there are still media outlets ten years later that are reporting that they killed civilians, even though it's you can you know clearly if you do some research you can see that it's not true. But that stigma is still out there, and the Marine Corps has never done anything to, to fully clear that. Mm. So uh, what, what's actually the next step is uh, Congress, Congressman Walter Jones from North Carolina has actually introduced a bill that is uh, basically what it's going to do is ask the Commandant of the Marine Corps to once and for all properly exonerate these men and, and clear their names because uh, it, it's long overdue, and uh, hopefully it passes. I think they're supposed to vote on it this month. Nice. So that 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 will hopefully be the end of this whole ordeal. But um, back to Fred, he, he he lives in Kansas City and he's got his own business. Um, Great. He's he also working on a book. Yeah, uh, talking about how tough it is to crack into the the, <laughs> the book industry. I mean, this guy's got the story of all stories, and uh, 
you know, it's it's one thing after another as he's trying to to get this book deal lined up. But uh, he's he's got the story detailed, and he's got help from uh, from somebody that that we knew through SoftRep that's that's helping him out to basically rewrite it. And um, when that does come out, it's uh, you know I, I hope that the book along with this House resolution are going to finally clear things up once and for all. I would think if Congressman Jones gives like a great passionate speech about this and also includes all the facts of what went on, people would feel wrong not to uh, vote the way they should on this. Yeah, I mean, you would think so. But like even at the uh, Congressman Jones had a press release for the the bill. uh, It was a couple of months ago. And you know, all of the facts were, were discussed and they had different, different folks get up and, and talk about the, the story. And, you know, it, it was very clear for anyone that paid attention, um, you know, that these men were innocent. And in spite of all that, a reporter that was at the press conference, whenever it was time for the Q&A, was asking Fred about, you know, how many civilians did you kill? Jeez. And Fred is kind of taking it back like, dude, are you serious? Yeah, you know, like you're really asking me this. So Fred addressed it and, and explained that that wasn't the case. And then it wasn't a few minutes later the same guy was asking him the same question. And it's just, I don't know if people don't want to believe it or if it's that hard to wrap their minds around. But yeah, it's we'll like see what happens. You know, you repeat it so many times it becomes the truth in people's minds. Yeah. So we'll see what comes of that. But I'll, I'll be sure to. You know, I know that there have been a lot of readers that have been uh, faithful to supporting. Uh, this this cause and, and writing their congressmen and congresswomen and um, I'll be sure to keep everyone up to date as that progresses. So, I was also going to touch on you write a lot of really great pieces for the site that you do some thorough research for. Uh, the latest is veteran brain injuries, understanding and treating traumatic brain injury and chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I looked up how to pronounce that word because I was like, what is this? Yeah, word? I just. I just stick with CTE. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, get into that with us. This looks like a great article about some innovations that are happening. Sure. So the uh, the article actually came about um, after I wrote the, the article on the, the incident with 3rd Recon I was talking about where the commander dropped that bomb, danger close, and then later uh, admitted to the fact that, you know, if he had to sacrifice a few of his own troops for the greater good, i.e. the counterinsurgency philosophy, that he would do that. So that article got released and the father of one of the Marines that was there that day reached out to me. Um, his son had actually just committed suicide and, um, he, he, you know, as a result, the, the topic was clearly very important to him. And so of course I wanted to help get the word out any way, way I could. And, um, he actually did, I mean, he did tons of research, uh, as, as far as the brain injuries and, we work together, and, and uh, hopefully, um, as a result of this article, uh, he, he's got some some contacts that he's working with um, to to basically lobby and try to get some change made within the Marine Corps and the DoD. But um, his research basically showed that there are some ways that the VA and the DoD can can treat these these victims of, of brain injuries, and uh, some of it is you know, following protocols that already exist, whether it's a concussion protocol on a, on a deployment, mm-hmm. you know, um, in the case of third recon, uh, in 2011, I mean, they, these guys got blown up nonstop and they were sent right back out on patrol. 
even though they already had a protocol to to monitor them and you know give them a little bit of a break, but it never happened. So you you let that go for a while and it adds up. Yeah. Um, so there's some stuff you can do on the front end, and then on the back end there are some treatments with uh, you know CBD and some other things that are outlined in that article. Um, you know they're it's still in the early stages, but basically calling on uh, people in the Pentagon to uh, to start make, taking some action. You know, I mean, there's there's plenty of powerpoints and there's plenty of uh, you know whatever you want to call them, like basically marketing initiatives for for getting uh, word out. But there's just not a whole lot of action. So interesting, man. Well, check that article out once again. Veteran brain injuries on soft rep. Nick has plenty of interesting pieces, so we're really glad to finally get him on the Members Only podcast, third edition of this. Uh, People have been giving us some great response to uh, the Members Only podcast that we're doing. Uh, Anything else that that you're you're, uh, working on before we let you go, man? Well, hopefully hopefully in the near future I'm going to have something on uh, the the incident with the 3-2 sniper urination incident. Basically, it has to do with the the guy that actually released the video. Okay. Um, there's been a lot of a lot of talk about the incident, obviously, for years. And yep. um, one thing that hasn't really been touched on is how it actually got released in the first place. And it's there's some pretty shady stuff that went on with it. So, um, trying to coordinate with the right sources to to make it happen. But so it wasn't like some. I'm assuming it wasn't like some Marines on social media just that they filmed it and will put it up. You know. No, it was, uh, I don't want to give too much away right now, okay. but it was basically, uh, someone profited from that, wow. from that video. So, um, so yeah, it'll be interesting, interesting. to see where yeah. this road takes. There's on uh, if you go on to like YouTube or something like that, you can, uh, there's this Delta force operation where they did a hostage rescue in Afghanistan. I think it's called the Italian job. And there's an interesting little backstory about how that video got released also little serpentine path <laughs> that huh. these things we'll have to take. check that one out too yeah though. yeah it's been out it's been out for years um and yeah but a, a friend told me how it actually got leaked out but maybe one day we'll talk about that too yeah i wonder if we'll ever be able to get an interview through nick or something of the guy who filmed that that would be a pretty interesting interview oh yeah <laughs> well well uh again not to not to get i guess i'm, I'm giving away a good bit here and okay but <laughs> that's I'm what we do sure here guy is I'm pretty sure that that guy is no longer with us uh, oh. due to his own uh, wrongdoing. Gotcha. Okay. So I'll just leave it. It's again, it's, it's a crazy story and, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into detail until I have a few other things confirmed, but that's, that's basically the gist of the story is, uh, this, this guy was, a uh, a character. So I'm pretty sure our audience is really going to look forward to that article. <laughs> I know I am. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Um, I guess the last thing I was going to say, man, you should republish this book. You know, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. sure you could just get it out there on Amazon, just like Jack has, or even, I mean, since the, it is a faith-based book, I, I bet you there's like Christian publishers who that's would true. love to hear a Marine, a Marine story from a, uh, faith perspective yeah it's, it's possible i mean if they reach out to me and they have a better reputation than my previous publisher i'll consider it but <laughs> i think i'm going to go the route that jack mentioned if i do that at all so yeah you, should, you I should do something that, with guys it. and you know I, I i'm going to give it a little bit of time and, and see how this all blows over with this current publisher but yeah man, you should do uh, you should definitely do something though i mean you work too hard on this book for it for just to be out for a few months just to gather and, digital dust on your hard drive yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so but I appreciate sh- that. Um, I mean, I, 
I, I was going to ask you if you don't mind, Ian. Like, I'm kind of curious now that you're full time uh, in your current gig. I mean, how, like, what's your normal day like? I'm I'm pretty excited for you and curious <laughs> to see what what you do now. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I know doing, you're staying busy. Yeah, I'm doing the the uh, two podcasts a week. One for members, one for uh, you know the public, and we put it up a week uh, in advance uh, for the members. But I'm just booking guests, getting in touch with everybody. You know, we I just got in touch with Rob O'Neill's people. They'll be coming on and Fine. setting up for when people are in New York to do the Facebook Live and that type of thing. Uh, speaking with the sponsors that we have for the uh, the show that we put on Apple Podcasts and all that type of stuff. So it's been, uh, nice. you know, keeping busy. Day to day, you're I, busy coordinating. I am, but at the same time, I'll be honest, and Jack knows this, it's a lot freer of a schedule from when I was doing this along with producing Senator Bill Bradley's show and call screening Will Cow, uh, this yeah. is a, this is a nice change of pace. Gold nine to five. Well, I can, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can imagine, man, when I was writing full time for soft rep, um, I was, you know, putting in 30 to 40 hours a week on that on average and then working at least 40 hours a week at my, my other job. So, um, it can run you ragged and, yeah. uh, to, to Jack and Brandon's credit, they've always treated me really fair. And when I had to step down into a more of just like a contribute as you can role, um, you know, you guys have always treated me well and I appreciate that. Yeah. It's so, one of the good things great. is the job has a lot of flexibility. Oh yeah. Yeah. For any, any, uh, former software writers that are whiners, you guys can, uh, go pound sand as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Jack and Jack and Brandon take care of us. Oh, hell yeah. Um, you could follow Nick on Twitter at Kaufman NR. Check out his articles at uh, Nick Kaufman. You'll see him on softrep.com for the members out there. Uh, and we'll definitely do this again soon. I mean, if you get the book out some way, we, we should have you back on yeah. to talk a little bit more in depth about yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And then if I, if I get this uh, whole sniper urination video thing played out, then I'll, uh, I'll be happy to come back on and talk about that whole story, too. That's a big one, man, because I remember that yeah. being blowing up all over the mainstream news. Yeah, yeah. And then it also sparked the debate of some people being like, this is terrible. But I honestly think more people saying, oh, some Marines pissed on some terrorists' bodies. Who cares? That yeah, was, that especially was when, I mean, if you, if you factor in that those Marines, like, if you, if you think about what they had gone through up to that point with their own brothers getting dismembered by the Taliban, I mean... You know, if you if you compare the two, it may not make it right, but yeah, you yeah, know, cut the guys uh, they, flag they, as far def- as I'm they definitely shouldn't have done that. But at the same time, exactly. it's, every time this kind of stuff comes out, it's like amazing how naive Americans are about what their soldiers are going through in combat. Like they're just completely oblivious to it. Like some pictures of like some dead terrorists or or something like that it happens every so often, get published and come out in the media or something like that, and people are like shocked by it. It's like, what the fuck do you think these guys have been doing for 15 years? Yeah. Yeah. I, I and then no they idea. don't hear about the other stories about, you know, Marines that I'm, I'm aware of and elite units that, uh, you know, they get captured. They get their position gets overrun because they get, you know, their, their uh, you know, requests for evacuation denied. They get overrun, get executed and thrown off of a cliff and, uh, you know. The American public doesn't even hear about that stuff well, the, for the, the most part. Uh, so. Honestly, though, Nick, the the military covers some of that stuff up too because they don't they don't want people to know. Yeah, like we we cover up our failures, quite frankly. They sure try. Yeah. That well, you but, think of like the Pat Tillman thing that was a cover that, up, something like that. I think uh, yeah. also some of the stuff. Um, 
uh, what was it, Operation Anaconda, um, where you had the uh, the PJ um, thrown off the back of the, oh no, it was, a, it was a dev group guy who got left behind on the mountain, and later it turned out he was alive. I mean, it's just stuff like that that the military tries very hard to gloss over some of their failures. Yeah, and it's it's amazing how selective they can be about going after you know, certain people for, for lesser offenses and, and different things like that too. Just, it, it hurts my head thinking about yeah, it, Yeah. but hopefully once I get some more info on this three, two incident, um, it'll be a little bit more manageable to talk about too, because talking about this Fox company series and, and everything else that I've worked on with Fred, it, it's, I mean, it was a, just that Fox company series alone was over 20,000 words and, uh, trying to come on a show like this and talk about yeah. it. It's, uh, it's hard it's to a little bit intimidating and hard to put into words. Yeah. Oh, no, I know. Yeah. I remember the first episode. We would ask Fred one question, and it went on. <laughs> it talked for half an hour. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Well, that guy's got a memory like a steel trap, too. He, he does. He remembers every detail. It's amazing. Yeah, thanks for hooking us up with him. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon, Nick. Appreciate you coming on the yeah. show. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a Team Room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at softreprepradio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.